0: Potentially simplifying the portfolio as well, you know, just kind of plug it in there and say this is a core global equity position. I think it can add a lot of benefits for clients. And I think as we go forward and navigate, you know, the difficulties that the U.S. banks, you know, JP Morgan's talking about, you know, credit risk, you want to stick with fundamentally strong companies.
1: Welcome to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. In these timely episodes, we provide the latest investment news and expert commentary on the markets, the economy, and investing. Brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management. Hello, and thanks for joining us today. As the U.S. markets brace for impact in the coming weeks, the search for yield is on among investors. In this episode, and against a tenuous U.S. political backdrop, Mark Race, Alfred Lee, and Chris Heeks make the case for defensive growth. Whether that means investing in quality or preferred shares, you'll see the benefits are substantial and multifaceted. On the other hand, this episode also weighs in on the unusual suspects like infrastructure and U.S. healthcare, which lie in the balance of this highly contentious presidential race. Before we hear from our experts, please consider subscribing to the BMO ETFs podcast on your preferred podcast player and sharing it with your friends and colleagues. Hello,
2: I'm your host, Mark Rays. I'm the head of product for BMO GAM Canada, covering mutual funds and ETFs. We're joined today by Chris Keeks and Alfred Lee, both portfolio managers on our ETF desk. Chris is focused on equity and derivative strategies, while Alfred focuses on fixed income and preferred shares. So let's dive right in here. Looking at markets, we see the new economy, companies pushing ahead again from a U.S. perspective. How is our call of defensive growth, quality exposures like ZUQ, uh, holding up in this market? As well, while we typically talk about the U.S., with the election, uh, with, with the polling where it is, uh, concerns about potentially Trump respecting the results, uh, we've been getting questions about lowering the U.S. overweight. So if I can turn this question a little bit, how much exposure to the global quality ETF ZGQ have to the U.S.? And beyond that, what type of names does it add to the portfolio? Thank you.
0: Uh thanks Mark and uh, yes yeah, NGQ is certainly um I, I would say it's an unheralded uh, superstar in the in the in the suite of BMO ETFs. Um definitely a true global strategy. Um, you know, benefiting from that quality exposure and you know I, I always said uh, as a one ticket equity solution, it's it's pretty compelling. Um but you know, circling back on quality, how are we doing in these markets? Um, you know, quality's really been the darling the last three to five years. Uh, looking at five years versus the S&P, so versus our ZSP ETF, about a 3% annualized excess return. Uh, year to date this year, our uh, ZUQ is up 22% versus 15 for for the index. And in the last three months, where we've seen, you know, we saw some wobbles in September, seems like things are, are regulating now, perhaps, perhaps I, I should say in strong quotations, with, uh, you know, a little more clarity on the election results, but uh, small outperformance the last three months, so about 7% versus 6.3 on the index. You know, and as we noted in, in previous calls, you know, giving you that outperformance um, when the market was wobbling, in particular when the NASDAQ was kind of coming off the peak valuations, uh, quality with a focus on, you know, fundamentally strong companies was there to to still outperform despite the overweight to tech. Um, so you know, I think you know overall, if you know if there's a concern about us uh, you know an exposure like quality not benefiting in a in a new new economy model, um the nice thing about quality and about the way that we access the factor is it adapts to the equity leadership. So you know one of the components of quality is high return on equity. You know our methodology and we utilize the MSCI index, it's going to rebalance twice a year and and at, at every given rebalance it's going to seek to, Gravitate more to those higher earning companies. It's going to seek to gravitate to the companies that continue to have um, really consistent earning streams. Streams. So, so you know, in fact, although it's defensive growth, it still does benefit from the new economy. And, and um, you know, you see tech kind of stalwarts like uh, Microsoft and and Google, uh, Facebook at times, um, you know, Apple being kind of core components of the quality strategy. So you know, short you know, long answer to say it's, it's performing very well and it is capturing, I would say, more than enough um, of the kind of new economy trade, and you can see that in the outperformance versus the index. Um, you know, looking to supplement perhaps to uh, the global. I mean, I think it's I think it's pretty um, you know definitely as you as you mentioned, it's a theme that we're seeing amongst investors. Um, souring a little bit on the U.S. You know, we've got U.S. banks reporting this week, and you know, as they've done the past couple cycles, you know, kind of warning that U.S. is not out of the woods um, from a credit risk perspective. And, and, you know, the primary concern at this point is, is COVID-related credit risk. You know, the election is, well, actually probably won't touch the election in this in this question because it seems to be becoming a secondary risk. But certainly, you know, COVID-related credit issues and concern about, you know, the navigation of that, particular, particularly in the U.S. being a concern. So we've you know, we've talked about on the call about, you know, exposure to international, exposure to Canada, I think, last week. And, and emerging markets, I mean, we've, we've done specific segments just on emerging markets. You know, so ZGQ, the global, being a global quality ETF, is, you know, it's essentially it's an Ackley strategy, so an all-country world strategy. And it's a one-ticket equity solution that gets exposure to all these regions, literally all the all the developed and emerging markets, you know, as categorized by, by MSCI. So it's a true global solution. It's the exact same methodology as ZGQ. So when you're thinking about benefiting from new economy, again, ZGQ, just like ZUQ, it's going to gravitate to those best companies in the world. Um, you know, and speaking of the best companies in the world still with ZGQ, it's still overweight the US you know, in regards to um, the, the broad beta MSCI acquis. So it's about, about two thirds US, about 67%. And if you look at the U.S. and the Ackley, it's about 58, so it's about 9% uh, overweight. So, you know, according to the methodology, we still see a lot of really strong quality companies in the U.S. Probably that's not a surprise to anyone, and that's, you know, that results in the overweight there. Uh, you see typically similar overweight, tech, uh, staples, and healthcare, But again, as you mentioned, you're you're in some cases supplementing those, you know, you know, those are obviously hallmarks of the US equity market right now, but you're supplementing them with more global names, particularly in the staples and healthcare space. Um, you see you also see that underweight to financial. And you know, I think that always resonates with a Canadian investor if you're pairing your Canadian exposures, you know, 10, pretty high financial exposure here in Canada, which I don't think is necessarily a bad thing, but in that global strategy, you want to complement. So you're getting really nice complementation there. Uh, so, yeah, I think that's a really great great exposure and, and, you know, potentially simplifying the portfolio as well, you know, just kind of plug it in there and say this is a core global equity position. You know, I think it can add a lot of benefits for clients. And I think as we go forward and navigate, you know, the difficulties that the U.S. banks, you know, JP Morgan's talking about, you know, credit risk, you want to stick with fundamentally strong companies, companies with strong balance sheets, strong earning potential. So I think quality is is still, you know, whether it's UQ or ZGQ in the global space. Um, or even ZEQ in the European space. If you're if you're looking to plug a you know European allocation, I think quality is, is definitely an exposure to continue to lean on.
2: Great, thanks for that, Chris. Yeah, I do I do find it interesting that we're getting more questions on the global of late, perhaps with some concern around the U.S. Uh, just realize there is that overweight uh, to the U.S. at, at about two thirds. I do like some of the names that that come in on the global portfolio, uh, clearly adding. Uh, to that exposure, stuff like Taiwan semiconductor coming in, Tencent coming in uh, still still capturing that um, a growing new economy trend, so quite an interesting ticker to look at the GQ so appreciate that let's now move on uh, there's There's another area which is topical with all the stimulus spending being discussed, and that's infrastructure. Our global infrastructure ETF ZGI, uh, unlike quality, has has struggled uh, compared to equity markets in 2020. So, when you look at uh, infrastructure, is this still a wait and see trade, or is there a catalyst out there uh, for this sector? Thank you.
0: Great. Uh, I'll, I'll take that, Mark. Uh, so, I, I think you know infrastructure is still a, a great place to be. Um, you know, if you look at infrastructure, it's been talked about as you know, way of stimulating the economy, not just you know over the last couple of years, but you know since the great financial crisis back in two thousand eight, two thousand nine as well. Uh, one thing I did want to point out is that during the last business cycle, so from March two thousand and nine until uh, March two thousand and twenty, uh, infrastructure stocks did outperform the S and P five hundred. Um, I think Chris and I mentioned, I think it was two weeks ago on this podcast uh, when we recapped. Uh, the first debate uh, between uh, Trump and Biden that you know, the Democrats and Republicans per- could probably agree that you know, infrastructure is not only a good way of stimulating the economy by creating jobs, uh, but also is a good way to revitalize the American infrastructure as it is, you know, badly outdated at this point. Um, you know, with uh, both sides uh, advocating for more infrastructure spending, uh, you know, on paper it's a good idea, but the problem over you know the last I would say a couple of years is that. You know, they can't agree on how much to spend, uh, what needs to be done, and all, also you know where that money is going to come from as well. So even though in concept, you know both parties are on the same page, it's really the details that they're disagreeing on. And in addition to that, there's a lot of you know political posturing that's taking place as well. So you know, the most recent 1.5 trillion infrastructure bill that uh, the House Democrats uh, passed, I think it was back in June, um, you know the House approved the 1.5 trillion infrastructure package to spend on things like roads. Uh, bridges, railroads. I think there was a internet component to upgrade uh, rural areas in the U.S. as well. Uh, that was later opposed by the White House and then the Senate Republicans as well. So I think you know what we need is that need either party to take full control of the federal government, meaning the White House, uh, the Senate, also the House as well, uh, in order to sign any bill into law without you know having you know any kind of opposition or minimize the chance of any kind of you know filibustering as well. So I think, um, you know, the issue isn't that, you know, one party is better for infrastructure than the other. Uh, But I think anytime you have a divided Congress, there's going to be roadblocks. So I think the the upcoming catalyst is definitely the U.S. presidential elections. Um, When we do potentially have either party taking control of the White House, uh, the Senate and the House, uh, this potentially could happen in November in the elections with uh, the Democrats more likely to do so as they do have, you know, forecasted probability of 92 to 97% chance in keeping the house. Um, So overall, you know, that's definitely a good catalyst for infrastructure going forward. Uh, Even if it is a divided Congress, you know, we still like infrastructure. One, uh, it is a lower correlation to the stock market. And also another thing to keep in mind is that, you know, a lot of infrastructure companies essentially, you know, they work on contracts. So the revenues tend to be more stable uh, compared to, um, you know, other companies within the S&P 500 as well.
2: Great. Thanks for that, Alfred. I think, uh, again, with everything going on politically, uh, infrastructure is is certainly getting some attention from advisors. I think the challenge has been the performance year-to-date, a uh, bit of a gap there. But as you, as you mentioned, certainly uh, some potential catalysts
1: uh, moving forward for uh, that asset class on, on ZGI. You're listening to Views from the Desk, a special edition of the BMO ETFs podcast. If you're enjoying this episode, we encourage you to tune in to our deep dive series where we take you under the hood of the BMO GAM product suite. Our latest episode takes a deeper look at emerging markets, an essential exposure often overlooked by Canadian investors. Listen in to learn more about the growth opportunities that exist in this still misunderstood asset class. Check it out. It's the episode dated September 29th in this same podcast series.
2: Another question for you, Alfred. Uh, With rates as low as they are, we're, of course, continuing to get questions on our higher-yielding ETFs. Cover calls come up all the time, but preferred shares are also a consistent ask. Um, But our rate reset ETFs at VR, of course, has been impacted by the dropping five-year Bank of Canada yield. As you are our host, prep expert, can you give us an update on your outlook for the preferred share market in in Canada? Of course, focusing on ZPR. And maybe put it in the context, uh, now that the dust has settled on that unique issuance that RBC came out with uh, back in the summer on the LRCN uh, bond. Do you see or do you anticipate further issuance of that type? And what impact would that have going forward on the press market? Thank you.
0: Yeah, so that's a good question. I mean, you know, to your point, we have been getting a lot more question on on preferred shares, um, especially after July. I think it was July fifteenth, where they announced uh, that Canada was going to start issuing uh, LRCN bonds or you know, at one additional tier one capital bonds. Um, so to your point, you know, RBC did issue the first one. Uh, in addition, in addition to that, we also saw a TD issue. Uh, EMO issue uh, 18-1 bond as well. Uh, so the other banks, the remaining banks, will issue. Um, and you know, on top of that, you know, all banks will issue. You know, multiple series or launch. You know, multiple issues of 18-1 bonds as well. Uh, one thing to keep in mind and why this is beneficial for the preferred share market is because, you know, when you look at bonds uh, from a tax perspective, tax perspective for issuers, uh, it's much cheaper for the issuer to issue bonds. Uh, but the drawback is that in the past, they haven't qualified for Tier 1 uh, from a Basel III perspective. The new LRCN bonds or the AT1 bonds do qualify as Tier 1 capital. And from a Basel III uh, perspective, they are considered on equal footing compared to outstanding uh, preferred shares. So this has obviously been you know very beneficial for the preferred share market. Um, so you know just to quickly recap, uh, why LRCN bonds have been favorable for the existing preferred share market is because, you know, when they when you have um, you know these banks issue tier one uh, additional tier one capital bonds or LRCN bonds, essentially what they're doing is any capital that they raise, they're essentially taking that capital and using that capital to recall any kind of existing preferred shares. So you know, one thing to keep in mind is that more uh, you know the outstanding preferred shares. Uh, when they do get redeemed, they're going to get redeemed at par value, which is you know twenty five dollars. Uh, so essentially, over the last you know couple of months, we've seen uh, bank issued preferred shares, um, you know a lot of them move from you know sixteen to seventeen dollars all the way close to par value of twenty five dollars. Um, you know one thing to keep in mind is that uh, the mechanism for the distribution payments, uh, so the coupons on the eighteen one bonds, essentially operate in the same manner as uh, preferred shares. So it's essentially going to be the five-year government of Canada plus some kind of reset spread, which is essentially the, the uh, credit spread. Um, you know, this overall, with the issuance of eighteen-one bonds, it's been, you know, it's provided a huge lift for the preferred share market because, you know, one, as I mentioned before, um, you know, they're going to use the capital to redeem preferred shares. A lot of the outstanding preferred shares in the rate reset market tends to be, Uh, bank-issued preferred shares. I think it's about 45% of the universe. Um, But in addition to that, you know, it's very beneficial because a lot of the older issues that were, you know, unattractive or, you know, essentially dead in the water essentially get taken out. Um, It provides a lot of stability to the bank component of the universe um, because, you know, the banks are going to redeem these issues, whether interest rates go up or down. Uh, So essentially, you know, the impact of falling interest rates for a lot of these bank-issued uh, the bank issued preferred shares. It's essentially been nullified. Uh, but it not only benefits banks because you know, there's been talks about uh, insurance companies uh, potentially getting the go ahead to issue 18-1 bonds as well. Uh, so uh, insurance issues have also uh, benefited as well. But the overall universe has also um, you know benefited uh, from this news because you know, one thing to, to keep in mind is that there's a lot of money invested in preferred shares either directly through issues or, you know, through funds or ETFs. Um, so when that capital um, or when, you know, you get capital back from, from a redeemed issue, that capital has to be reinvested into the existing market. Um, so that's why we've seen you know, anything from media issue preferred shares to energy to real estate issue preferred shares, they've also benefited, you know, on this news as well. So overall, you know, we do think this is a, a pretty significant development for the preferred share market as anybody that's kind of followed the preferred share market over the last couple of years, it's been very highly volatile just because of you know where, where rates have fallen. So this does provide a lot of stability uh, going forward for the market. Uh, one thing I did want to note is that if you look at, look at um, where the five-year government of Canada has moved year to date, it's essentially fallen, you know, 133 basis points. So right now it's floating around, you know, 35 basis points overall. Uh, the, our preferred tier ETF, ZPR, is only down 2.3% here to date. Uh, So essentially, a lot of that downward movement in interest rates has essentially been nullified, as I mentioned. Uh, Another thing to keep in mind is that since the market bottomed uh, on March 23rd, uh, ZPR is up uh, essentially 56.3%, outpacing both uh, equities and bonds. So we do think this news is very uh, positive for the asset class going forward.
2: Great, thanks for that update, Alfred. I know a lot of advisors have questions out there with that new unique bond issuance and what that might mean for the preferred share market going forward. But uh, clearly we have seen that, uh, that price jump uh, in, in response to that. One more question for me, and Chris, I'll come back your way. What is your outlook on U.S. healthcare with the noise out there on Obamacare. I mean, I thought it was quite interesting to see the Democrats uh, use the Supreme Court hearings to defend Obamacare. Perhaps also that's a bit of a comment on their ability to to enact change on on uh, the Supreme Court. But uh, however, they they did choose to to really go after um, an idea that they're really looking to defend. We've seen outsized returns from the sector and of course here in Canada we have such a limited exposure to healthcare so how does US healthcare fit into an investor's portfolio and beyond that how do you how do you see potential
0: outcomes uh for healthcare later into the year thank you i think i kind of avoided politics on the first question with quality uh, but i don't think you avoid politics here it's definitely a heated political um political debate in the US um, but, you know, overall, for, for investors, I think, you know, healthcare is a sector you want to have exposure to. You know, it's obviously a very important part of, you know, um, GDP. You know, developed countries, healthcare tends to be in that 10 to 15% range of GDP. Uh, as you mentioned, it's almost completely unrepresented in Canada. So in Canadian equities, healthcare is predominantly marijuana companies, um, and then maybe a couple others. Um, Bausch, you know, the old bio-bail is, is still in there. But, you know, for, for all intents and purposes, I would say almost unrepresented in, in Canadian equity markets. But, you know, I think it's a sector where obviously, you know, somewhat like infrastructure, you know, there's obviously a long-term demand profile. You have people living longer, um, you know, and that trend's going to only continue, seems like. So you know the demand for healthcare is certainly um, going to be there, kind of like the demand for infrastructure will always be there. So I think it's a good um, overall sector for investors to have exposure to. You can't do it in Canada, you know. And then on the other, the flip side, you know, obviously the opportunity to innovate in the sector, I think, can lead to strong investment opportunities. And we're seeing that with you know most recently the the hunt for the vaccine and and, and that. Um, but I think you know in terms of looking at it right now on a more situational basis, you know where I would say you do want to have exposure to it over the long term. But situationally, um, looks like Democrats are you know, certainly the favorites right now to take both the president um, the president uh, nomination as well as, as the Senate. So that's probably the default scenario. Biden's about an 80% chance for the president. And, and, and if he wins, he's about a 70. I should say the Democrats are about a 75% chance to take the Senate. The House is almost certainly going to be Democrat. Um, That's not that that race isn't watched very closely. So you know, two or three outcomes, you've got that Democratic sweep. You know, if you look at you know the Democratic overall policy, you know you would you would note them for increasing regulation, you know increasing corporate taxes. Now I think they're still beneficial in terms of the stimulus, and we talked about that big picture. But if you're looking at you know regulation, where that can potentially impact, you know I would say healthcare would be one of the first sectors to look at, and in particular, pharma, right? And the the level of drug pricing and the drug pricing issue, that's still pretty um, significant in the U.S. So, you know, that would be, you know, kind of the one kind of concern. You know, I'd also say for investors, you know, with the biotech sector, obviously very compelling right now, but be very careful of of choosing one or two companies. I think in the hunt for the vaccine, you're going to have winners and you're going to have losers. It's not going to and, you know, the biotech sector is one that's known for wide dispersion of returns. As certain companies get drugs approved, you know, obviously very beneficial. As companies that have drugs fail, and we've had a couple of vaccine trials that has been halted uh, this week, right, um, that can be very negative. So, you know, the, the biotech sector is one where I would say the ECF approach is a very good one for investors, where you get many companies, you're diversified, you can benefit from the overall theme, but you don't have to rely on Know being the world's greatest stock picker, and I think even the great biotech investors, it's still it's still tricky, you know, to to get them right. There's a lot of variables, you know, in terms of getting a drug to market. Uh, so that all said, you know, we have the two healthcare sectors, ZHU and ZUH, so the unhedged and the, the hedged. Um, again, it's got that ETF approach. There's over 50 stocks, actually, I believe it's 60 stocks now, equally weighted in the portfolio. One thing I really like about said UH, or if you're looking at healthcare as, as a sector play right now, is the pharma is our biggest underweight. So in the market cap of the healthcare pharma is about 28 percent. We're at 14. So we're half the weight. We're at 14 percent underweight on pharma. And I, like I said, if there's one kind of subsector that I think is perhaps at the most risk, you know, certainly in the, in the context of a Democrat sweep, it would be the pharma. Um, Consequently, we do have an overweight to biotech, a smaller overweight, Um, and then we've got some overweights to kind of the more equipment, supplies and healthcare services subsectors. So, you know, again, looking at biotech, you know, it's certainly it's a riskier sector. But again, I I like the ETF approach of getting all the companies together, throwing them in the basket and benefiting from the theme. You know, biotech does well over time. Um, but if you're not in the right companies, you know your experience can drop can, can differ drastically. So again, the benefits the benefits of having an ETF approach there. So I think it's I think it's you know it's definitely uh, something you want to have um, exposure to. Um, you know I might you know if I I don't know that now would be the time to say okay I'm going to go majorly long healthcare right now. Maybe see how it plays out with the Democrats. But 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 you you do want to have some of it in your exposure. And again, if you're going to go in there, I think. Um, the BMO ETF options are, are probably the best with that underweight to pharma. You know, and then, and then one last word just about, you know, you can get that exposure through your broad indexes as well. And SP 500 has got about a 14% weight to healthcare, so you get some there. Um, our U.S. quality, you know, that we we talked about off the top has about a 19% weight, so about 5% overweight to healthcare, so another couple areas. And if you're in, you know, the European – Equity market. There's there's some large healthcare companies there too that you likely have exposure to. So you can look you can look at that on an on an aggregate basis. Um, but yeah, definitely an exposure. You know, just given the themes, the demand profile, um, the opportunity to innovate. I think it's you know certainly an attractive sector. Canadians. You know, if you just have Canadian equities, you you don't really have any exposure to it. So um, there's a few different options to uh, to get it out.
2: Great. Thanks for that update, Chris. And it's actually quite interesting to hear you you speak about the subsectors and and realize how potentially well-positioned our ETFs are relative to the market. So something for investors to keep in mind, where, of course, I also think you hit right on by noting there can be significant uh, name risk uh, if you go out and buy one or two of these companies uh, directly, I think. In this case, if you're trying to catch the theme, an ETF is is certainly a more uh, secure way to, to make sure that trade goes your way. So with that, I would like to check if there are any questions on the line for our PMs.
0: Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my question here. Um, outside of the banks, what is another Canadian play at the present time? or uh, over the next possibly three to six months that you believe is well-positioned for some volatility that advisors can allocate some cash to? Uh, I'll listen to your answer. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thanks for the question. I think, um, you know, being in being in somewhat defensive, stable companies, you know, perhaps it's a cover call overlay, you know, you can benefit from that volatility. So, you know, dividends in general, of a sector, or I should say, a factor that's underperformed a bit. Uh, we have the ZDV and the ZWC. You know, so the ZWC takes that core dividend strategy, overlays it with the covered calls. You know, we, we've been talking a lot about monetizing um, the volatility environment with with the covered call strategy. So, you know, I think that's a good one. And uh, you know, I'd say utilities as well. We're seeing a little bit of a catch up trade in utilities. You know, as rates went. Um, you know, much lower a few months ago. You know, typically, you'll see utilities will have that interest rate sensitivity. They didn't really, they didn't really follow, but now they're starting to catch up. So, you know, although utilities are kind of yielding in the four percent range, doesn't sound like a lot. It, it's pretty good when you've got you know five-year bonds yielding in you know, like the a fifty basis point range. So, you know, another sector there that you know, in the case of utilities, you kind of come back. to people, hope they get still attractive and kind of just pace into this recovery. So as we see this recovery over time, I think, you know, being in those large cap stocks um, and generating a lot of income to potentially work to navigate those.
2: Thank you to both Chris and Alfred for providing your insights, uh, going in-depth on uh, some of those topics Really helpful to flesh out those conversations. So with that, I'd like to thank everyone one last time and have a great day.
1: Thank you to Mark Race, Alfred Lee, and Chris Heeks for joining us on the BMO ETFs podcast. If there is one key takeaway from today's episode, it is trust the fundamentals. Specifically, our portfolio managers point to BMO GAM's quality ETF, ticker ZUQ, which, when paired with its global counterpart, ZGQ, reduces U.S. exposure and offers the best of the new economy. For more information about the ETFs discussed in this podcast, please see the episode notes below contact your regional BMO ETF specialist, or simply visit bmoetfs.com. If you enjoyed today's episode, we encourage you to subscribe. And if you have any questions you'd like addressed in future episodes, please send them to Vachon, A-N-D-R-E-W dot V-A-C-H-O-N at bmo.com. Thanks again for listening. See you next time. The viewpoints expressed by the Portfolio Manager represent their assessment of the markets at the time of publication. Those views are subject to change without notice at any time, without any kind of notice. The information contained herein is not and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice to any party. Investment should be evaluated relative to the individual's investment objectives, and professional advice should be obtained with respect to any circumstance. Any statements that necessarily depend on future events may be a forward-looking statement. Forward-looking statements are not guarantees of performance. Views from the Desk has been brought to you by BMO Global Asset Management.